for a lifetime and still have things to learn. So we will continue on the uh, trek that we've taken here. We established early on the uh, deity of Christ. To that extent, we haven't spent, or since that time, we haven't spent a lot of time on, on doctrinal issues, on apologetic issues, defending his deity. But we've spent more time rather talking about his interaction with others here and how we can learn from those things. So with that in mind tonight, we are going to get into a discussion of relationships with others while he was here in the flesh. But first, we want to talk about some of those who were near him, uh, specifically his opposition. It's kind of hard to imagine that somebody who came and gave up what he gave up for the time that he was here on the earth leaving heaven's portals. It's kind of hard to imagine that someone who came here for the very purpose of saving mankind, whose only motivation was love, it's hard to imagine people hating him, isn't it? Look with me in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, I think we have a good explanation of, of why this happened. Kind of a general principle here. We looked at John 1 in the first lesson of this series when we considered the deity of Christ. And it says, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Now John 1 and verse 2, The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now watch this. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended Him not and comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he sent, was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now those are very sad words. The next verse is great. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but, nor of the will of man, but of God. But you see why Jesus had opposition. He was diametrically opposed to the ways of the world. The world is darkness. What does light do to darkness? It dispels it. It runs it away. It makes it vanish. And Satan, of course, is represented by darkness. And Satan doesn't want that to happen. Didn't want that to happen. Still doesn't want that to happen. That's why he continues to douse the light of Christ to the best effort that he can make. That's why Jesus calls us the light of the world. Remember in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Because we are to show that light into a world of darkness. But Satan wants to douse it. That's why he keeps attacking you. That's why he keeps attacking me. Because he knows that we're light as Christians and he wants to stop it. He wants, to, he wants the darkness to dominate. So now with that in mind, we get a better understanding or at least realize as we get into the lesson about the opposition. And we start and focus primarily on, although we, could spend, we may spend just a little bit of time about the Hellenists and the Romans, we're going to spend most of our time on the opposition that came from the very ones he came to seek and to save. Luke 19, verse 10, that's the Jews. Of course, he came to save all of mankind, but he initially came to the house of Abraham as per the promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, 
Genesis 49 and verse 10. During the time of the intertestamental period, there was about a 400-year period from the time that Malachi laid down the pen of divine inspiration until the time that John the Immerser came on the scene. 400-year period in which, as Amos had indicated in Amos chapter uh, 6, that there would be a famine in the land, a famine not for food or for water, but for the word of God. During that 400-year period of time, there was no direct revelation from God. Malachi was the last. Malachi, the very last words written by inspiration, were the words indicating that there would be the messenger, the forerunner who would come leading the way for the Messiah. During that time, as men are wont to do, as we know from some nearly 2,000 years of no divine inspiration, as men are wont to do when there is no direct message from God, even though they have one written and available to them, they want to change what he's written and they want to create their own. They want that power. Instead of trusting in the power of God's word, mankind often turns to their own devices and seeks to, to promote their own power. And so during that 400-year period of time, different groups developed, each trying to indicate that they were the favorite of God. From those different groups that arose, they're developed by the first century by the time Jesus came. There were two that we primarily are familiar with. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they weren't the only ones. They got the most publicity. They got the most press. They had the most power, but still there were groups like the Essenes. There were the Zealots. There were the Herodians, and I'll just touch base on those in just for, uh, briefly. So let's start with the Essenes. The Essenes were similar to the Pharisees, but believe it or not, they were even more separatists than the Pharisees were. The Essenes did not oppose Jesus, but they were obsessed with purity. And being obsessed to purity, and you wouldn't think this, but this is, this is the case. Being obsessed with purity, they did not approve of Jesus associating with sinners. Okay, with the publicans and sinners. Remember that, those, those words that are used, in fact, uh, as we'll see in just a little bit, Jesus was actually called the word Samaritan became an epithet to where somebody wanted to insult somebody else, they call him a Samaritan, and they did just that. They called Jesus a, a demon. He has a devil, and he's a Samaritan. And so they used that in an insulting way. But the Essenes didn't like Jesus, did not approve of him, because he, uh, he associated with sinners who were unclean. So those are the Essenes. Then there were the Zealots, the zealots were social bandits, as one writer called them. He called the zealots the Robin Hood of first century Israel. The zealots took matters into their own hands, even by force if they felt that they needed to. They believed that if they undertook armed rebellion against the, uh, those who opposed them, that God would help them throw off foreign rule. The more typical zealots, as one writer said, seemed to have been men such as Barabbas, whom the crowd chose to liberate in preference of Jesus. The zealots were aggressive. They wanted a military leader to lead them out of the Roman oppression. They would not have approved of Jesus' teaching to love your enemies. Now, remember, when we get to whatever time we have left tonight, when we don't finish tonight, we'll get to next day when we're talking about relationships. We're going to talk about Jesus' relationships with his family. We're going to talk about his relationships with those who opposed him. We're also going to talk about his relationship with his disciples. He had 12 men, did he not? 11 of whom would live on and would be there when the church was established in Acts chapter 2. Plus, of course, Matthias in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, who was added later.
But think about, give you kind of a preview, think about what Jesus had to do to get these men to cooperate with one another, to carry out the greatest mission the world has ever seen, outside of the very mission of Christ himself to give his life for our sin. And so you have in that group of, of 12 at that time, you had Matthew. What was Matthew's job? He was a tax collector. Who did he work for? He worked for the Romans. Remember we said the zealots thought that Rome should be destroyed at any means. So guess who was another one of those apostles? Remember his name? Simon. The zealot. Which could be just a reference to his zeal, his enthusiasm, but it also could indicate that he was one of those zealots. So now, when you talk about a difficult task, how about two men who are exact polar opposites of one another in, in their thinking? And they've got to get, Jesus got to get them to work together. It's amazing, and we'll see that as we get to that point. So those are the zealots. Again, I won't going to spend a lot of time on either of those because there's not a lot mentioned about them. The Pharisees, let's talk about them briefly. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee, the Greek word translated Pharisee, its, uh, its origin actually means to, to separate. So they were separatists. The Pharisees were the most prominent group among first century Jews. They had, they had uh, groups in uh, pretty much every town and village. They numbered about 6,000, and they were extremely influential. The Pharisees were driven by a vision for the whole people of Israel as a kingdom of priests. This resulted in them becoming very religious when it came to spiritual purity, tithing of all the produce and keeping the Sabbath according to, now watch this, their interpretation of work. Now this is, you know, Dennis Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 1, there's no, no new thing done under the sun. And, you know, we tend to repeat history, right? This is interesting that one of the writers, one of the historians said that the, the Pharisees, due to culture, felt like the Torah, or the Law of Moses, needed to be explained in new ways. Does that sound anything at all like 2019? Because is there anybody today in 2019, well, the Bible needs to be explained in new ways because we're in a different culture now. Has anybody ever heard anything like that? You see, we didn't invent that, did we? Our generation did not come up with that. The Pharisees, among other things, as we know, they held, upheld their traditions. I have a copy of some of the prohibited activities because they had their own definition of what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. So they even got into very, some very detailed uh, items here. So let me just read a little bit, and again, what I want to show you. And by the way, let me throw this in here too. Uh, people throw that term Pharisee around. You're a Pharisee. And, and, and they hurl that charge sometimes against a brother or a sister who believes that we ought to follow the word of God. In like manner, they use the term legalist. And, and I'd like to suggest that a lot of times when people use those terms, they don't know what they mean. So if somebody, okay, yes, I've been called those. 
So if somebody calls you that, the first thing I suggest you do is ask them to define that. What does that mean? You call me a Pharisee, okay, if you, that's fine. If you want to call me a Pharisee, that's fine. But can you tell me what that means? So I, if I need to correct something, I can correct it. And what we're going to find is that what the Pharisees were, when we come to Matthew 23, among other things, they were people who did one thing and taught something different. Or they taught God's word, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3, when they taught God's word, Jesus said, listen to them when they teach the word of God. But then in the next verse, he says, but don't do what they do. So that's a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is one who made up his own traditions and, watch it now, bound those traditions on an equal level with the word of God. So if, if you want to call somebody a Pharisee, make sure you know what the word means. Make sure you can back it up. But... To give you an example of how they had done this, the concept of keeping the, um, keeping the Sabbath holy, this is from one of the Jewish books that says, uh, let's see, sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, hunting a deer, slaughtering it, skinning it, salting it, curing its hide, scraping it, cutting it, writing two letters, erasing for the purpose of writing two letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a flame, lighting a flame, striking with a hammer, carrying from one house to another. These are the principal sins against the Sabbath day. In other words, those are things you shouldn't do. And a few more. The tailor may not go out with his needle close to nightfall before Sabbath, lest he forget and go out with it on the Sabbath. And neither may the scribe go out with his quill. One may not, ooh, this is, this is not pretty. One may not delouse his apparel on the Sabbath day. Okay. And may not read by lamplight on the Sabbath day. One may not place a vessel beneath a lamp to catch the oil that may drip. But if it was placed there during the day before Sabbath, it is permitted to collect the oil. Nevertheless, one may not benefit from the oil caught therein because it was not set aside before the Sabbath. A new lamp may be moved on Sabbath, but an old one that has already been used may not be. And then one may not put an egg at the side of a hot kettle such that it becomes cooked, nor may one crack it in hot cloths. Again, this is a sampling, but you see what was going on, right? They had people saying, well, what are we supposed to do? Or, or they just decided to make things a little more difficult. Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus was going, his disciples were going through the field, and the uh, Jews rebuked them for going out on the Sabbath day. Jesus addressed that. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. That kind of gives you an idea of what happens when mankind gets hold of things and tries to change the way of God. Jesus accused the Pharisees of nullifying the commandments in the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, by holding human traditions and becoming legalistic. They considered the authority of Scripture to be equal to their traditions, their own rules, which caused trouble with Jesus, who called them hypocrites. The keeping of their own sectarian rules and regulations had become far too important. The Jews' laws of purity and diet stopped 
table fellowship with non-Jews. The Jews attacked Jesus for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Pharisaical hostility was because they felt he was lax with respect to their laws, was too accepting of sinful people, and was open to contact with Gentiles. And again, I keep coming into terms that make me want to just jump off track for a second, but this phrase, um, too accepting of sinful people. Folks, did Jesus associate with sinful people? Of course he did, obviously he did. Did he condone their sin? No, he invited them and urged them to repent. So this isn't like, well, yes, Jesus hung out with sinful people and did what they did and went along with their sins with them. No, he showed them the love of God and invited them and encouraged them and urged them to be obedient, to change their ways. What about John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery? Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Okay, but they took that, apparently they understood. Uh, the Pharisees thought that because Jesus was associating with sinners, somehow he approved of their ways. Another conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was because they saw Jesus, here it is, and this is what Michael touched on too. They saw Jesus as a threat to their leadership and thought he might influence people. They didn't want to lose their power. That's the Pharisees in a nutshell. The Sadducees, the Pharisee, the word Pharisees from a Greek root word that means separate or to separate. The word Sadducees comes from a Greek root word which means the righteous. Uh-oh, well, that's what that's going to be about. Doesn't it kind of make a little red flag go up in your head when somebody says, yes, I'm the righteous? Or I am the most right. You know, that's a term used for some religi religious leaders today. The most right reverend, the most holy reverend. Doesn't that kind of make a little flag go up in your head and say, wait a minute. That doesn't seem like the humility that God wants us to have. But the Pharisees, or the Sadducees rather, the Sadducees, uh, definition meant the righteous, so it shows what they thought of themselves. They were very influential. There weren't that many of them compared to Pharisees, but they had the money. They were the so-called higher class citizens and temple priests. The Sadducees controlled the priesthood, had a lot of political power. You've heard of the Sanhedrin, the 70, word Sanhedrin, the 70, the Jewish council, the leadership. It was comprised of the Sadducees, primarily and was basically under thumb of the Sadducees. They were extreme conservatives in everything and disliked changes of any kind, especially changes which could affect their own dominant position in society. They rejected all of the Pharisees and a lot of devout Jews' theological beliefs. The Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible to have authority. The Sadducees only believed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to be authoritative. And again, just showing that things don't change much over the centuries, it kind of reminds us of those who today look into the New Testament and suggest that the, the red letters are more important than the black letters. Of course, the, disciple, the inspired writers did not write in red letters anyway, or black letters as a distinction. Those were done by some who wanted to show this is what Jesus said. But the whole new covenant is the covenant of Christ, is it not? Hebrews chapter 9, the testament for which he died. The red letters are not more important than the black letters. It's all important. But there are some even among us who have indicated that 
the gospel accounts are the most important, and that's not true. We need to read, we're going to be judged by the entire New Testament, John 12, verse 48. Their theological views of the, fair, of the Sadducees stopped them from believing in angels or spirits. They did not believe in angels or spirits. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection and end time judgment. They did not believe in the coming Messiah. You remember at one point when Paul was called before the Jewish leadership and he perceived that they were split up into Pharisees and Sadducees. And he said, for my belief in the, in the coming of the Messiah, the resurrection, the life of the Messiah, I'm called into question this day. And the Pharisees said, well, there's nothing so wrong with this fellow. Because Paul was a Pharisee himself, of course. Sadducees wanted nothing to do with him. And, and Luke says that they, they went after each other. Paul decided to divide and conquer. They didn't believe in, in angels, spirits, life after death, resurrection, or judgment. In fact, in Matthew 22, we'll see that in just a little bit. They attacked Jesus' belief in the resurrection. They were the ones who brought up the, the thing about the, the woman who was married and the husband died and then she married his brother and he died and so on and so on and so on. They thought they had him on that one. The Sadducees seemed like a very comfortable group with power and control. They came into conflict with Jesus because they felt threatened that they would lose power. Their disbelief in the whole law of Moses stopped them from seeing a returning Messiah. And they were too consumed with their own self-works for personal gain. Now, here's, here's the irony. I've done a lesson, it's called uh, Contradictions at the Cross. And immediately when I say that, I have to explain, as I'm going to do now, that I'm not suggesting that there are errors in the scriptures. What I'm suggesting is the contradictions are in the hearts of those who are surrounding Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees despised Jesus, did they not? The Pharisees and Sadducees despised one another. However, when they realized that they had a common enemy in Jesus, all of a sudden, they were unified. And also, all of a sudden, speaking of contradictions or ironies, you might call it ironies, another one is this, the fact that while these two warring factions had decided to get together to attack their common enemy, all of a sudden, They thought Caesar wasn't so bad either, right? These very people who had been hoping, the Pharisees looking for a Messiah who would lead them up against the Roman oppression. And then all of a sudden, when Caesar cries out, when the cry is made out to the crowd, what shall I do with this one who is called your king? Speaking of Jesus, what'd they say? We have no king but who? But Caesar. Can you imagine them saying that? Shows you the level of hatred that there was among this Jewish leadership. Although the Pharisees and Sadducees did not get on with each other at all, they had a common issue, and that was Jesus. They, the Sadducees consequently made common cause with their political enemies, the Pharisees, in condemning Jesus to death. Both groups together had massive political and social influence. This put an extreme amount of pressure on the Romans. This resulted in the decision to crucify Jesus. I'm going to get there in just a minute, but let me just throw this one in real quick. What we're going to see in just a few minutes is the climate. I'm not talking about the weather. I'm talking about the, the, 
the psychological, the theological, the philosophical climate of Jerusalem and Judea when Jesus came in the flesh. We're going to see that in just a minute. It was, it was filled with fear. The Pharisees and Sadducees were afraid of the people. The people were afraid of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the people were afraid of the Romans. The Romans, to some extent, at least Caesar anyway, not Caesar, um, Pilate, was afraid of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was a lot of fear going on. And here came somebody, and all he ever did was help people. And they allowed their prejudices, their preconceived notions, their fear, their pride to put him to death. So briefly, let's just talk about the Hellenistic culture and the Roman rule. This is where what Jesus came into. Not only was he dealing with the sects that had developed during that intertestamental period, but he had to deal with the, the Roman rule. The Roman philosophy of, of uh, over, overthrowing a, a country was to allow the country to retain its method of government as long as it was, as it was subjugated to the Roman government. So in other words, if you had this government set up and it did not violate the Roman principles, you could keep that government. That's why when you come to the first century, you see there is such a strong Hellenistic influence. By the Hellenists, I'm talking about the Greeks. Remember, it was the, the Romans who, who took the Greeks' power away from them. But instead of wiping out Greek society, they melded Greek society into Roman culture. So that when you come into the first century, during that intertestamental period, there was a, a, uh, a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes who had sided with the Hellenists and he had brought in much of the Hellenistic culture. And the Hellenistic culture, if you're familiar with it, is uh, very pagan, very materialistic, very worldly, multiple gods, quote unquote. And this had permeated society even into the city of Jerusalem. And that's why people were looking for some kind of a deliverance from that. That's what they were expecting to be delivered from that particular thing. So that's what you're dealing with when Jesus came. You're dealing with those sects of Judaism, but you're also dealing with some of the Jews who had gone over into Hellenism besides the Hellenistic society itself, which was idolatrous. Just a few conclusions. Palestine had a strong Hellenistic culture brought in by the Greeks. There was already a lot of tension in first century Palestine, even before Jesus came into the picture. As for Jesus, he came into conflict with let me read that again. There was already a lot of tension in first century Palestine, even before Jesus came into the picture. And you're thinking when you look at that, could there have been a worse time for him to come? But you remember Galatians 4 and verse 4. Where Paul said, in due time, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made after the law. In other words, in the mind of God, the time was right. So we can judge all we want about which would be the best time for, you know, or wasn't that a really hard time for Jesus to come? 
And even people today say, well, isn't this, aren't these horrible times we live in? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges today, but I'm telling you what, if we were to jump back into Jerusalem in the year AD 10 or whatever we want to call it, I think we'd find that uh, we hadn't changed a whole lot. We did not invent sin, although we're good at trying to perfect it sometimes. But there was a lot of evil going on during that time as well. God had his plan. God carried out his plan. There was a lot of tension there. As for Jesus, he came into conflict with the religious groups a lot. He generally came into conflict with Pharisees and Sadducees the most. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for upholding their traditions equal or higher than the written law. They attacked Jesus for associating with sinners and tax collectors. Both the Pharisees and Sadducees felt threatened that Jesus might influence people and take away their power. The Sadducees hated change, especially if it could affect their position in society. They also did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah because they did not believe in the full law of Moses and were not looking for a Messiah. The Pharisees did not identify Jesus as the Messiah. They were expecting Messiah, but he wasn't it. It's not what they wanted. Therefore, because these religious groups felt threatened by Jesus, they used their social and religious authority to make the Romans sentence Jesus to death. Questions, comments, anything on that? Okay, so now we know what he's into. Now we know what Jesus came in, into. We've got something built into us that the easiest term that's used in relation to this psychological and to some extent physiological response to challenges, the most common term we use is fight or flight. Familiar with that? Fight or flight. That means that when we're faced with a challenge, we either stand strong and face it head on or we run the other way. And I'm sure that all of us from time to time have either run the other way or wish we could have run the other way. Folks, let's all understand Jesus didn't run the other way. He met every challenge head on. And aren't you glad he did? So, let's talk about his relationships. We'll talk about how he dealt with others because, again, the others are coming from a position of, of weakness, of sin. Even those who were closest to him, we'll talk about his relationship with his disciples as well, but even those who were closest to him weren't perfect, were they? So let's talk about these relationships. Romans 14 verse 7 establishes the need for relationships, that no man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. We can learn a lot about relationships in the Bible. Think about in the New Testament. There are multiple commands that use the terms, term one another. Why are those verses in there? They're directed to Christians from Romans through um, the rest of the epistles are directed to Christians. Why are these commands about one another in there? Love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, pray for one another, forgive one another. It's because God knows the importance of relationships. That's why they're in there. Jesus taught us 
how to have good relationships. So let's talk first of all, before we get into specifics of the relationships with others, let's talk about the foundation of Jesus' relationships. So you want to learn tonight how to have a good, strong relationship with others. Let's look at how Jesus did it. First of all, at the very foundation of Jesus' relationship with others was truth. Did he ever lie? He told the truth. Look in uh, John chapter 8, in verses 40 and 45. He's speaking to the uh, Pharisees, who again were arguing with him or against him. And he said, you seek to kill me, a man has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. Abraham did not do this. John 14 and verse 6, he defines himself as the way, the truth, and the life. John 16 and verse 7, if you abide in me and my words, excuse me, that's chapter 15, chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. We have other verses we could give, but for time's sake, we won't. Jesus came to do the will of God, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9 says. Jesus' whole life was based on truth. Therefore, his relationships were based on truth. How long does a friendship, a working relationship, a marriage last if there's dishonesty? Does it last long? If the person or at least one of those people continues in dishonesty? No, it doesn't. There's no trust there. There's no standard. There's no foundation for building a strong relationship. That's why the first point we make regarding Jesus himself and his relationship with others, it was always based on truth. He's going to tell you the truth. I worked with a fellow one time, and uh, he said, I'm going to tell you the truth. You may not like it always, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And I always appreciated that because I knew where I stood. And if he said something, I knew it was going to be the truth. And I didn't have any reason to question that. Well, that's where Jesus was in his relationships. But in conjunction with that was the fact that Jesus, at the foundation of Jesus' relationships was love. John 15, since we're there in John, John 15 and verse 9, says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you, continue in my love. Verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So it's that combination, like Paul exhorted in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, speaking the truth in love. There's that combination of being truthful, but doing it in a loving way. And then another thing that was at the foundation of Jesus' relationship with, was compassion. And compassion is, in essence, in essence, putting love into action. There are several examples of this. In Matthew's accounts, in Matthew 14 and Matthew 15, of the feeding first of 5,000 and the feeding secondly of 4,000. What moved Jesus to provide food for those individuals? If you look at Matthew 14, 14 and Matthew 15, 32, you'll find it was compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, the multitudes had been following Jesus and they looked out, Jesus looked at all these who were following after him and the Bible says, 
that he saw them as sheep wandering about not having a shepherd. And it says that he was moved with compassion. Jesus healed. He raised a, a child from the dead. The Bible says the reason he did it is because he looked and he was moved with compassion. So we have truth, love, and compassion. Maybe there's more. But at least those three things were at the very heart of Jesus' relationship with others. Now, if he is our supreme example, and he is, 1 Peter 2, 20 through 22, therefore I suggest that when we go and read the New Testament, specifically we read about his earthly life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I suggest that we look at how he treated others so that we follow that same example. To be truthful, to be loving, and then to put the love into action and do something about it, not just talk about it, but show that love toward others. So let's talk about his family. Let's talk about his earthly parents. We know Luke 2 and verse 51, that after the uh, incident in Jerusalem, when they had gone to the city of Jerusalem at the age when Jesus was 12 years old, that um, he had been separated from his parents for a time, they went back to find him. And then verse 51 says, after that incident, says he went down with his parents and was subject to them. So he was an obedient child. But verse 49 still indicates that his emphasis was on serving God. He said to his mother, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? So while he was subject to his parents, first and foremost, he was subject to his heavenly father. Again, a principle that we should all apply, right? We should love our parents. We should care for our parents. We have that exhortation, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And yet we know that our first and foremost priority is toward the Father, Jesus and his earthly parents. Let's talk about his siblings for a second. In John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, <clears throat> it seems by the things that are said here, in verse 5, for instance, in John chapter 7 and verse 5, there was a Jewish feast coming. And verse 5 says, Neither did his brethren believe in him, speaking of Jesus. And they told him to go down into the city. Verse 3, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And I wonder, if I, when I look at verse 5, where it says they didn't believe in him, I've always wondered, is that just kind of a, kind of a uh, mocking statement? You, know, you say you're who you are, then go down and show everybody. Show all your disciples who you are. And that's what Jesus' response was, well, my time has not yet come. And that was his response in verse 6. His siblings. Jesus did not argue back with them. He responded calmly to them. That's not always easy to do with your siblings, is it? Okay. Matthew chapter 12, talking about his siblings and now his mother as well. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Jesus was in a building preaching the gospel. 46 through 50 says, While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? He stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. In Mark's account, in Mark 3 and verse 21, 
Mark indicates that his siblings essentially said, and again, this is Mark 3.21, his siblings essentially said, go get him out of there, he's beside himself. He's out of his mind. But again, we notice Jesus' response to that. It's not disrespectful to his mother or to his siblings. Again, he's just reminding, I have a higher purpose here. I have a higher goal. I'm focused on doing the will of God. Realizing he had such a short time anyway, he was focused on doing the will of God. Now let's get down to, well, we'll run out of time. We'll save this for next week then. Jesus and the Jewish leadership of the day. Does anybody have any questions, comments, with the time we have left you'd like to make? Okay. We will pick up, and we are going to talk next week about how Jesus dealt with those who hated him. Our instruction in the Sermon on the Mount is how are we supposed to act toward those who despise us? How are we supposed to act toward those who hate us? Are we supposed to hate them in return? Are we supposed to see if we can exceed their hatred toward us? How are we supposed to act toward them? The answer is, how did Jesus, well, the answer's in the scripture from Jesus saying it himself, but the answer is also in how did he do it? From that we learn how we deal with those who oppose us. Let's have a prayer together. Father, we're thankful for the time we had to spend this evening to study your word. We're thankful for the perfect example that Jesus left for us. We're thankful for your word that we can read and study and develop these Christ-like characteristics in our own lives, and we pray that we will have that commitment to do such. We pray, Father, for your continued blessings as we go out into the world, that we indeed be the light in a world of darkness to help others come to you and to know Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.